You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And to be honest, this is take three of trying to introduce Daryl, <laughs> whose name is Daryl Peace, not Daryl Pace. Um, <laughs> so I finally got it correct. Some of you may remember him from our episode several weeks ago on colorism. Today, we are here to get his perspective on issues related to entrepreneurship and small businesses and building wealth in our communities. We've started something new. We've asked our guests to give us one sentence to describe who they are. And for Daryl, he didn't even need a full sentence. It's just one word. Uh, He is an entrepreneur. So welcome to the show. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Mr. How are you ladies doing? Pace, we're excited. Doing well. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. I think it's timely in a lot of the conversations about racial inequity and racial injustice when you look at the wealth gap in our country and what that means for us as Black people in terms of earning potential and in terms of business, in terms of growing and scaling and ultimately selling businesses. And so in the context of founding something great and then selling it, I thought you would be a really great person to have this conversation with. So no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to solve all the problems right now with Checkbox Outreach, but um, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. So go. Go. And we have 20 minutes, so you don't have to do it all in the first question. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll pace myself. Uh, you know, looking, looking Ah, back I see on, what you did there. Pace myself. Like okay, yeah. I get it. You I'm sorry it. I was late. Good. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it really started um, way back when, when I think about my childhood and some of the questions that I posed to my mom. Right. I think, Katie, we talked about this one time where we're at a a buffet and I questioned her why the prices were so low. And I literally said to her, is that because, you know, they want to do volume? You know, just in my mind as a kid, it was already like the economics and and business was already kind of there. And I didn't really know it and obviously didn't appreciate it at the time. I was just too young to do that. But let me fast forward. I was probably eight then. And let me fast forward to 14, 15, a quick story. And so I, you know, I went to a private school, very affluent uh, children of affluent parents, right? And for them to have, we had a ski trip. And for them, it was nothing, right? And I don't know what it was. It may have been $300 for a weekend in the Poconos. And I already knew the answer, but I asked my mom anyway. Of course, she was like, no. So now I need to figure out because I'm stuck in this quandary. I'm too young to work because I'm not 16. But how am I going to make money? And so I had a discussion one day with um, my school bus driver. And I was always the first one on a bus and last one off um, just because of how the stops were. And she said, well, I don't know what you could do, but if you like, you can, you know, rake my leaves. This is fall. You can rake my leaves. I don't want to do it. And I'll pay you X amount of dollars per hour to do so. And so I did that for the entire month of November and December in order to, to raise the money for myself to go on that ski trip. And not only that, I actually had some spending cash. Um, <clears throat> so that's 
I really consider myself to be my first employer. Uh, I even had a little taste of business because in my mind, I thought, hmm, if I hire somebody, i.e. my cousin, we can get a lot more work done. But then at the end of the day, I realized, wait, now i got to split my, my profits <laughs> with him. This guy's screwing up my bottom line, so you're fired. <laughs> and that's literally what happened. But anyway, I just say all that to say, like, um, I think it started when I was younger and I was able to see opportunities for what they were. I think that's the first thing um, that's different from a entrepreneur's mindset. They'll look at something but be able to see the opportunity and a way to, to monetize that opportunity. So you look at things a little bit differently. Instead of looking at it straight ahead, you might look from underneath or from the side or on top and get a different perspective on um, what opportunities are to be had there. So I kind of had that mindset and I, and I worked for I know I worked for the government for a while, then I worked for a couple of big, you know, defense contracting firms. So, and then I moved to a smaller firm. So I saw all sides really, right? I saw how the public sector kind of worked. I saw how the big defense contractors worked, but I also saw from a small business side. And I really just went, you know, I ripped down the curtain, right? And I said, you know, there's no Wizard of Oz back here. I was like, I can do this myself. This is not that difficult. It's not that hard. It's not some type of magic behind it right it's just solid business principles that i learned in school and so i had to conquer my own mindset that i wasn't good enough to do this and once i was able to conquer that everything else kind of just fell into place and i started to take advantage of opportunities that were given to me i started off with just a company of, of one uh for for many years and then again it was another fear hurdle that i had to get over and say well why can't i actually grow this into something bigger than what it is today and so, you know, I was able to do that, do it well, and be able to, to exit out. So when you say exit out, what does that mean? I was able to be acquired by uh, another business. So, you know, it's way cheaper to, if you want to get into a product segment or a product line or what have you, it's way cheaper to just buy somebody who's already in that space, who's doing well and, and has a good name for itself versus you doing the research and development and eventually trying to do that yourself. So in my industry that I was in, it's fairly common practice for that to for that to happen, right? It's to kind of rinse and repeat. Damn, I just want to yeah. know what industry were you in? And if you I was in tell us a little just, more. No, I was in uh, government contracting. Okay. Right. Um, and uh, I did a number of services uh, for them in terms of, you know, whether it had been, you know, national security, uh, business process improvement. I even, after sequestration, I went into some like healthcare consulting to try to diversify my portfolio um, because uh, that was a big wake up call for me with sequestration. You always thought, you know, wow, if you got government contracts, you're good, you're solid, right? Even that became uh, untrue. So I was able to work in those couple of spaces. So provide services. You, I mean, clearly started out, you were, I, I believe, born an entrepreneur just in those questions you were asking your mother. I was never asking those type of questions when I, I was just at the buffet eating, right? <laughs> clearly, my pictures show that like, if you look at my childhood photos. But uh, I guess in, in starting up, so what did that really, really look like for you, though, right? So you're from Baltimore. You, a lot of times when you go into business, you need startup capital and people can go, they call it, especially in venture capital, the friends and family round. And when you look at minority communities, 
we don't have the capital among our friends and family for that initial investment into your company. And so what did that look like for you in starting out your business? For me, it was actually, uh, I generated my own capital. And so those years of just working, being a company of one, uh, you know, I, I lived well, but I didn't live crazy. But and I kept a lot to able to be able to invest later on. And so I always did kind of like a third, a third, a third type issue where, you know, uh, the profits, I would take a third, a third went into the company's coffers and then the third went to business development initiatives. So that's how I kind of carved out my profit. And so I was able to fund everything that I needed to do. Um, But I also knew that I could hit a patch, meaning that I know how many people I could take on in any given time without having this happen to my to my coffers. And I can't quite remember what that was. But let's just say, for instance, something happens, something booms and a task order comes out and you're able to get 10 FTEs in the month of June. Well, from a payroll perspective, you may not be able to cover all that. Those new that new influx of people. Right. Um, And so what are you going to do? Because the very first thing that anybody expects of their company is one Paycheck is always going to be on time, and two, my health benefits are always going to always going to work. So those are the things that you have to make sure you always have. And so I just went to my local banking institution when I first started, and said, "Hey, I need a line of credit." And you know, based on you know, people have to understand that when they run that credit, because you are the company, it's going to be your credit. Yeah. So if your credit mm-hmm. is not in order. You can't go traditionally to a traditional bank and walk in there and say, hey, I want X amount of money. And they wanted to double what I was asking for, actually, as my line of credit. And I said, no, that's crazy. I just know I need this right now. But it's also nice to know that I do qualify for a little more if I actually need it or not. But so those are the things that you need to have in place to be able to tap into. But they also and look at you- sorry, they also look at your debt to income ratio as a whole. And so I know for me starting out, my student loans played a very big factor on my credit worthiness when I went into banks as a small business, you know, as a startup. And so all of these things that come together that when you look at the disparities in black and brown communities, we're already behind the eight ball in lending. We're already behind the eight ball, like I said before, in the friends and family. And even in the blueprint of the knowledge that we have to start a business or what that really looks like in terms of pure business fundamentals, we sometimes don't grow up having those conversations around the dinner table or with our friends or being exposed to those conversations. And so the business piece, going back to what we mentioned before, I believe that to really make an impact in minority communities, we need to talk about wealth creation And I think that's business. And so I'm glad you're bringing up the banking piece because the conversation has to start 10 steps before the actual business plan and going into business. You have to think of all these other factors that need to line up before you can even start. So I want to spend some time like in two issues that you raised there, Katie. I think first, I think it'd be really helpful to spend some time just defining like what is wealth? Like what are we talking about and what is the wealth gap that you're bringing up? And I think after we go there, I'd love, Daryl, your perspective around if we're not already having those conversations, how did you find out this information? I know we've done some previous shows where folks talked about, you know, maybe they went to their local business administration or they had a mentor. But 
there's even a step before that to even know that those are the folks to contact. And so want to spend some time, like, where do you go to get information when you have no, no idea where to start? Mm-hmm. Um, you want me to start or Katie, you want to well, I'm not going to lie. I had to Google just now. I wanted to get real numbers. This is actual, actually what Daryl is better at in terms of seeking data and diving into the, the nitty gritty. But you can start and then I'll get my, my answer to Aaliyah's question together from Google. It's okay. I also have, I, you want me to start? I have a, um, I pulled up an article. <laughs> okay. Well, I found one on Brookings. Brookings is always my go-to on all things Go to Brookings. So it's a little left-leaning as folks. Okay. So this was an article published February 27th, 2020, and it says at $171,000, the net worth of a typical white family is nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family in 2016. So a black family's net worth was $17,150 compared to $171,000 for a white family. So that's the wealth gap that we're talking about in terms of access to property, access to meaningful and upwardly mobile jobs. Those are all things that have contributed to the wealth gap being what it is right now in our country. Uh, and then the, to answer your question, um, you, it's amazing what you're learning if you just watch. Right. And like I said, I, I understood. I watched how things operated when I was in the public sector. I watched again when I work for a big company and I watched it uh, again as a smaller company. So I felt like I had a pretty good perspective, but what the things that I didn't know, um, I would read up on stuff. I would ask questions of those I felt were, were knowledgeable about that particular subject um, is really no one good answer. I think you need all of that to be able to, be able to make informed decisions about your business. Um, you know, reading is, is, is very important. Uh, reading case studies, um, is extremely important. I found it to be extremely uh, informative and important for me. And then again, just having those conversations with folks who are where you want to be, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be in industry specific. It can really be a number of industries. So you get a very well-rounded, um, circumspective look at how are people succeeding and how do people get where you want to be. Right. And so every time you hit that next rung on the ladder that you need to search for that other person, the next person that's uh, where you want to be. And you just kind of keep going that way. That's the way I, I found to have good success. Now, it would have been great if there was some sort of business or, you know, advocacy or, or something like that that would do that for you or help you help you do that. I didn't I couldn't find anything like that at the time. Uh, and, and you're already time strapped as is. I mean, you're working a solid 16, 17 hour day almost. And you don't know. I mean, my biggest lessons have been that people were telling me certain things. Even you, Daryl, you were telling me, hey, look out for this or don't do this in your business. Watch out for this other thing over here. And when you're new, you don't even know. Like, I didn't even know what you were saying when you were talking about those things. And so some things you do have to go through. But I, in a lot of instances, was willfully ignorant to where I wasn't doing a lot of the research and the case studies. I just dove in and figured it out the hard way. So I'm glad that you're of that type to say that to start reading and paying attention and asking the questions because I definitely didn't do that. And I lost a lot of money because of that. You lose a lot of money, and a lot of time if you want to try to go through it yourself. And it could be to your own peril. I said, why do I need to replicate the same mistakes that somebody else has done? If I can learn from them and learn how to circumvent 
those um, hurdles, their mistakes, then I'm that much more ahead of the game in my mind. Where do you see the gaps right now? So when you see from the startup, whether that's the solo entrepreneur, that's somebody that might have three employees, five employees, where are the gaps when we talk about minority business? What does that really mean for the minority community? One is the business development networks. I think those are, are lacking. They're certainly out there. I'm not going to say there's none at all, but it's not, to me, it's not extensive as you know our counterparts are. So those things are missing. And I think it's just a matter of connecting because there's got to be, I always believe this, if I'm here you know, in this DC area and there's probably, I don't know, 10,000 more of me. And then in Baltimore, maybe 10,000 more of me. In New York, it could be, you know, 100,000 more of me. We're out there. But it's like, why aren't we being connected, right? So some way, somehow, there has to be some sort of intentionality to connect with those who are in the same boat as you. I always say there's, there's enough money out here for all of us. So it's not really about competition. It's really, you know, iron sharp, sharpening iron here in order to, to make us uh, better in order to, to, to grow. Um, I think we don't pay enough attention to talent acquisition. I don't think there's enough intentionality in uh, workforce pipelining, right? Creating those relationships with HBCUs and their career centers, um, creating an internship program, um, connecting with vocational and technical schools. Those are a great way to, to keep a steady pipeline of, um, you know, talent acquisition. And there's mutuality in that, right? It's great for the colleges because it helps with their placement percentages but it also helps you obviously with with your pipeline um just sound business practices i think a lot of times that's lacking and if you don't have that foundation right if your hr your accounting your legal uh, your insurance benefits all that isn't set um you you can't grow or scale so those uh foundations need to be uh in place and then lastly which everybody knows is the access to capital, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, it just hasn't been there for us. I think, you know, the numbers are somewhere between 1% for venture, venture back businesses in terms of minority owned businesses. So that has to change. And I know there are some black VCs out there, black angel investors out there. Um, but we need, we need more. Those funds really need to help, um, black business owners, with the capital that they need, because as we talked about, the traditional routes are sometimes uh, not even a, not even an option. You know, so which means VCs again, uh, line of credit if you can do that, um, grants, and so forth. Right? It's almost like when you're trying to go to college and you put it in your college applications. Right? So you did that. Now you need to pay for that college education. So you write to almost every known scholarship that you can qualify for. Right. In order to to get that money to help you pay for school. What's the same way with your business? Like, how can I who can I reach out to? What programs can I take advantage of um, in order to help me with my business? There's a lot of these programs and then money gets untouched or significantly just sits in a pot because really nobody has taken the time to fill out said application or do said whatever in order for you to, to get that money. So sometimes the money is there. We just first you got to know about it and then and to have to be intentional about pursuit. I mean, you started out by talking about the power of having better networks. And I think there's such a link between your network and what you're talking about, about getting that access to capital. 
And I think figuring out how do we bridge that gap? Because a lot of these programs, it's not just do you know about the program, but it's also who you know that's running that program or what relationships do you yeah. have with banks? And I don't know what the answer is, but I think figuring out some way to help minority communities better create those relationships with banks, but also helping those in the banking industry develop specific products for the businesses we're trying to create, for the markets we're trying to serve. So that's not some one-size-fits-all approach, but it's really a package and a program and um, a lending program that is designed to support businesses in our community and help them grow. And you got to strike while the iron is hot. Right, right now, uh, with you know, COVID kind of you know, lifting the covers off a little bit, and of course, you know, everything that's going on with uh, police brutality, and every, you know, a lot of these Fortune 500 companies are now pledging money. So make them make good on their word. Like PayPal today said $530 million for you know, black minority-owned businesses in the community. Take advantage of that. What, is the, what do I have to do in order to get that, right? You know, some retailers are saying they're specifically going to allocate 15% of their shelf space, right, to, to black-owned products and things like that. Like, okay, well, now they need the products to be put on the shelf. So who's up? Who's up the deck? Who's ready to go? Yeah. And the intentionality has to be there to where, especially now what we're seeing with the awareness of Black Lives Matter and the support behind it. What it can't just be we're going to offer you the shelf space, right? Like, how do we loop you in with other suppliers and other vendors? And how do we get you to where instead of that fraction of the shelf space, you can compete with the other brands for the top tier shelf space? And I want to go back to what you said quickly about the pipeline and the workforce and the vocational programs. Because I think Alex Smith with Division Street Landscaping is very vocal about this and saying that people sometimes in these that are administering these programs aren't worried about the life cycle of the person, right? They want to check a box. They want to run somebody through the program. They want to count that metric for their, for their grant. It's simply a who we served, not how we serve them and what their livelihood looks like on the back end. And so even the implications of the metrics and what the measurables are of success for those programs, whether it's through the pipeline, whether it's through the access to capital or what people are doing, we have to have the real conversation because again, it goes back to that charity versus empowerment conversation. Like, are you just trying to pat yourself on the back or are you actually trying to empower folks? But I mean, to that point, I know Katie, you and I have been having a lot of conversations around in this moment, what is the action that needs to be taken? And those who are in a role of, you know, being an elected official or a decision maker or the creator of some of these programs, like what are the actions they need to be doing differently? So I'm curious, and Daryl, this is to you, but as you think about the things you just listed that are needed, what could, you know, maybe local programs at your chamber or your small business administration or other, I don't know, business incubators, what could they be doing? What specific actions to make some of the things you mentioned around the networks or making um, entrepreneurs aware of some of these big programs and opportunities? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, you're talking about, you just mentioned incubators. I think that's very important, too, because if someone can be resident in an incubator for, you know, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months and get all these services in one place or at least 
you know, they can start there in one place and then it kind of branches off and smokes. I think it's so it would be uh, a lot easier if that was the case. If I can just go to one entity like the SBA, what have you, and be able to score that org and all these other organizations where I can go and or be like able to, Zero uh, Model Nova, what? Or Zero Model Nova. Gosh, no, I'm joking. Any of those places. <laughs> um, to be able to to be able to get those type of those type of services, I think, uh, be extremely beneficial. And then, and then, and then you push them out, right? Well, See, that's what an incubator a, is. A, People right, need to know. It's not a know... swim type scenario. Then it's you have now properly prepared this individual. You have uh, increased this person's contacts and networks. You've introduced them to the players in whatever industry that they're that they're um, dibbling and dabbling in. Um, oh, dibbling and dabbling. That's you like that? Yes. <laughs> You, you, and you I feel like there's an inside joke there. No, but it just sounded this. funny, like no, dibbling but... and dabbling. <laughs> um, but no, but you're hooking it up with everything that they need to in order to be successful. Uh, it'd be great to have that one-stop shopping. It seems like a lot of these programs, they just do one thing and one thing only. So now you got to deal with 12 different programs in order to get, uh, in order to get this holistic uh solution but that's what an incubator is when you look at i always say like a baby bird that even though i'm scared to death of birds i don't know why i always use the baby bird analogy but if you put it or a chicken right or a baby an actual baby whatever like in an incubator you're putting it in an environment to nurture and protect it while it's most vulnerable and when we look at startups and people trying to grow their companies, you are most vulnerable in those first one to five years. And so if you can nurture it and protect it with the resources that are actually needed, that sets them up on a whole different trajectory. And then they leave the incubator and they can go out on their own. A little different than an accelerator that a lot of people are doing as well. Both are very important. So I have a question about maybe accelerator in terms of COVID times. So we have a lot of businesses right now that have been hit extremely hard and they're just starting to reopen and probably having questions of like, how do I get back on my feet as quickly as possible? And looking probably internally, but also looking to their cities and other partners and their banks to try and help them reach where they were much faster. Do you guys have any ideas for like what what might an effective accelerator program look like in in the times we're living in now? where people, they don't have a year or they don't have extra time to go through some of these programs. Well, during COVID, whether you're an employee or an employer, you should have been doing your homework during this time, right? So when when COVID first hit, obviously it was about survivor mode. And then it went from survivor mode to pivoting. And now you should be able to come out of, you know, post-COVID with a renewed strategy, right? Can you go back to the way you did business before or the way you now pivoted is actually what your future is going to look like. You have to have done that homework. You have to have ran those numbers and you should be able to now come out and hit the ground running. Because if you don't, you're going to be in a world of trouble because now the second wave is going to hit you. Right. So you were, we were all ill prepared once. Right. And that was obviously forgivable because this was unforeseeable, but what it isn't so unforgivable is if you come out on the backside you survive which many hadn't and that you still fail because you didn't do uh, the proper homework you were supposed to do in order to realign and and recalibrate your strategy that's going to give the same value that you did before and perhaps um, 
a renewed value to to your customer base. And that goes back and you to have the network. To switch with that too, right? Because your customer base may have just completely changed. But that goes right? back to your network because you know who did their homework. Starbucks <laughs> did their homework, and now they're pivoting in their model. Chipotle did their homework, but they have a whole separate. They have a different set of resources than the everyday person has, and so it, that network that you talked about before is crucial. Well, I'm going to make an assumption that Daryl did his homework too. And so I, I don't know. I mean, what's next for you? Like, what have been some of the things you've been plotting on during this time? Well, I called the Starbucks pivot, did I not, Katie? Yes, yes, yes. I did. Um, in the food industry, um, you know, it depends. Like, I have different customers. So each customer is, is different. But with, uh, when, when I do consulting, you never really thought about, you know, a force majeure like this before. Um, on this proportion. And so now you really have to think about it because this is this is the times that we live in. So this may not be the first and only time we will have something like this. So force majeure is my favorite clause. Can you explain what that is? (laughs) Active nature. (laughs) That's completely 100 percent disruptive. Force majeure Um, is like the shoulder shrug emoji. Like, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that was going to happen. Exactly. We talked about it in this clause. We really didn't think it was going to happen. Um, but yeah, I, you know, something like this, and I know a lot of businesses are now thinking, um, how are we going to deal with this in the future? Because it probably will happen again, right? And we need to be better prepared. We came out, uh, you know, on top this time or unscathed, but we may not next time. How are we going to survive that? So for each customer. And each industry is a little bit different in terms of what their pivot looks like. I think a lot of people, though, digital content was something that may have been ignored in some industries and obviously has been invaluable in terms of the pivot strategy to make it through uh, COVID. And so now it's it has to be part of their strategy and then also part of their budget. A lot of people never really budgeted for for these type of changes, and now you have to be um, intentional about really allocating those dollars um, to help with your pivot strategy. So for me, it's just again taking a entrepreneurial viewpoint or optic for my you know uh, my customers and saying, "Hey, have you thought about?" this or can we think about this this time or you know we wanted to go here but maybe we actually need to go um over here instead and i think now people are receptive in the beginning people were like, eh, they were kind of apprehensive but now they're beginning to see and now everybody else is everybody else is doing it and it's now proven to help you come through i think a lot of people are saying yeah this is something that i need to adopt and i need to plan for this is part of contingency planning it's just good sound business practice great job so, I'm excited. So how do how do our listeners get in touch with you? Because you are dropping knowledge bombs and people might want to learn more. You can go to Slate 7. Go to Slate7.com. You can reach me there. Reach me on the website. Um, always willing to have a conversation with, with anybody. Um, always willing to help. Uh, I think that's the first thing that we, we always have to do is is find a way to help our brothers and sisters out there. And I think we can do that through mutuality. And that was something I wanted to talk about too, just really quickly about the value He's like, y'all didn't talk about what I wanted to talk about. Well, I just wanted to talk about value proposition because I feel like, um, you know, 
there has to be mutuality on both sides. What I really hate as, you know, having been a black owned business is, you know, someone else comes in that's black and they want, you know, a discount on your products and services. Well, that's not cool because you wouldn't treat, you know, an Asian business owner or a white business owner. You wouldn't dare ask for any type of discount or a hookup. And on the flip side of that is, you know, as a business owner, right, if somebody in your neighborhood comes in and one of your friends comes in and you, just, and you say, hey, oh, I can give them, you know, inferior service because they're yeah. my friends and my neighbor, you can't do that either. So there has to be mutuality across the board in terms of the customer, the consumer, and also the business that's uh, providing the, the product and the services. I think that is very, very important. I don't know why the consumers don't uh, give more respect to the black business owners. But the black business owners, you have to, if you're going to charge a higher price for your services and products, because you are a small business, right? And so you, you may have to do that. Then what is the value? Why should people come to you? You still have to answer that question. It's not an automatic, you should come to me because you're black and I'm black. To me, that's not an automatic, right? You have to be say, you have to say, well, what is, what am I providing you that everybody else is not? What is my differentiator? And I think that's a focus that people need to put more time and thought into. I'm really glad you mentioned that, especially at the time we're in now. I was just um, on Twitter. Keith Benjamin, he is the transportation director for the city of Charleston. And he had this whole thread on right now, a lot of folks are talking about sort of race and the impact of COVID and all of these other issues on our communities. And they're talking about it as if it's new and they're creating this new work. The reality is a lot of black and brown authors and planners and folks in any industry have been talking about these things. And so his whole point in the thread was rather than extraction and taking these ideas for free, go hire that person to come and talk to your company. Go pay them for the book deal. Go create and work with them and allow them to have the business opportunity and the wealth generating opportunity versus, okay, we're going to put out a new, a new piece or a whole new report, or we're going to recreate the wheel when many of us have been talking about these issues for decades. Mm -hmm. Yep. Very important. He's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Genius. Well, thank you, Daryl. We appreciate your time. I hope this is the first of many conversations because it's the second. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's the first one for Daryl Pace. It's the first one for Daryl Pace, though. I meant to say, I hope this is the first of many business conversations, not race or colorism. No, I'm joking. I really dropped the ball there. But no, I'm excited to have you on again, and thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and you uh, ladies have a good one until next time. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? All right, Aaliyah. I see you're in nature and I love it. It's very um, calming. And so I'm really jealous of your life right now. Well, I had to step outside because every time I hop on the phone with you, I get really excited. And it just took me an hour to put my son to sleep. So I'm like (laughs) hiding on this balcony and letting my neighbors listen to all of this wonderful podcast. Hey, I admire the determination. I might come over next time. This episode, I found that I get the most fired up and excited about business conversations because I do see the opportunity in business when we talk about the wealth gap we talk about education. I mean, it all ties into business and job creation. And so I 
really have enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed the episode that we aired last week with Christina Francis. What were some of your key takeaways from this business conversation? Well, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you to you for expanding my network and introducing me to so many small business owners and entrepreneurs, because that was a space that I feel like I really didn't know many people in that area. And so talking to Daryl, talking to Christina, talking to you, I feel like I'm just learning so much about like the unique challenges that business owners face. So for me, when I finished the episode, one of the things I was thinking about was, you know, how has the coronavirus really impacted our entrepreneurs, especially in our region. And so I started doing some Googling and trying to figure out like how are folks faring and what are the things they need. And I found this great article on Forbes, which we can put on the resource page, but they interviewed 13 entrepreneurs of color and asked them, you know, what do you need? How are you doing? And the things that came up in terms of what they need, one was around loan forgiveness. Another was refinancing at lower rates. They talked about needing access to capital and help expanding their networks because it's often very difficult to get startup capital from friends and family. They talked about coaching and mentorship programs. And then lastly, there were several who talked about like online platforms and sort of virtual trainings to help them transform their current ways of business. Mm -hmm. And as I'm reading this, I was like, oh my God, we've talked about this. Like we've talked about this on a lot of episodes. And so I don't know, I just, for me, I think Daryl just hit home again, that some of these very things we're talking about around helping folks, you know, tap into the networks, tap into the ability to access capital to really start up their businesses. Like that's key. So how do we break that barrier? And I don't know that I know the answer, but I'm like, people are saying the same thing over and over and over again. Then let's figure out how we respond to that. We don't need another study. We don't need another interview to tell us that we're hearing it. Let's figure out what it's going to take to do that at local state and federal levels. And it's disrupting the cycle at any point. And so we talked about this on our episode with Christina on their, our recap and saying that for black business owners, our capital is expensive. Our interest rates are higher. We typically don't get funded at the levels that we need. We can't just go to our friends and family, like we mentioned in the mm-hmm. episode, to say, hey, invest in my startup or invest in my company. We sometimes are using personal credit cards, maxing them out, whatever it might be. We have to disrupt the system, whether that's in earning, whether that's in income, whether that's in education, whether that's in access to capital. We can't keep waiting to say, well, this group over here has to do it and then we'll see the business outcome. Like, no, just disrupt at any point. And that's what I think all of this, you know, the interconnectedness of every conversation that we've had. We've talked about the, you know, the same issues with Brian Jackson. We've talked about this, like I said, with Christina Francis. We've talked about this with Eric King. Daryl talked about the talent acquisition and workforce pipelining. Like, is that a helicopter? (laughs) (laughs) They want to be on checkbox outreach too. Next time, guys, chill out. Um, but with the workforce pipelining and the talent acquisition and and the job readiness, we have to just jump in and act and change the game in every area. So it's not going to hurt if you go into one over the other. Like my ask is that let's just get started. Like, let's go. So I think piggybacking on that, getting started, one of the things that came to mind is right now, how many companies have made these pledges around supporting black businesses? 
And there are a lot of like commitments, but I haven't seen a lot of specifics on what that looks like. And I think what we have talked about are like some concrete things you can do to disrupt every step of that pipeline. So where are you putting money in to make sure that we're like getting the next generation of young black and brown children who are ready to be small business owners? Where are you putting money in to help these businesses that already exist get the capital they need to not only start up their businesses, but maintain their business and thrive as a business owner? Where are you putting money in to connect folks to your networks, your boardrooms? And so I just feel like here's the moment where so many folks are saying, oh, our company is committed and want to do something. And I think there's like concrete ways you can do that. So let's put the money, if you're pledging the money and the money's there, let's put it to action. Absolutely. Some of these very things. And when so you, I'm curious. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and when you talk about leadership, the true definition of leadership is that leaders create more leaders. And so when you have these bigger corporations and these bigger companies, those same groups that did the Black Lives Matter posts and exactly what you said, like we want to support black businesses, what can you do to train people to take you out of your job? Like, what can you do to train people that don't look like you to come for your C-suite? Like, let's have that conversation. Like you said, it's the table, it's the invitation, it's this is how I, how I do things. And I'm so grateful for people like Christina and Daryl that have been through the business piece and reached their hand back for me. If that's the way that you operate, you win by default. Like, mm-hmm. there, you can't come from the scarcity mindset and think that if I help you, that's taking away from me. The opposite happens. If only everyone thought like you. <laughs> but I don't I, I think everybody I has to. No, but I do think, I, well, of course, we're never going to get everybody. But I wish more people thought like you because I think that the scarcity mindset is far too prevalent. Well, I also couldn't get in the door from the parking garage today because I couldn't figure out how to hit the button. So maybe not fully think like me, but definitely take the change maker piece and make the impact because we we have to start somewhere. And kind of to that point is I text you the other day when I was going through one of our episodes and in, in the name of getting involved or the name of just getting started. So I text you and I said, hey, I can actually tell when you and I are very uncomfortable in in a conversation or in a topic area because the ums come out or the uhs or we stutter or we backstep. And we're doing this on the most public platform possible. And I just want other people to see that you can enter the conversation and feel uncomfortable and then do what you can from there, right? Like there's no correct answer. Most people are very willing to help, but you don't have to be perfect to enter. And that I think is my key, key ask is just jump in like double Dutch, like jump in, let the ropes hit you. Eventually you're going to figure it out or not, Um, but then take it down to a single rope. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) This is the perfect metaphor because I sucked even at the single rope. Um, But I never stopped jumping in. Yeah. And with this podcast, I think this goes back to, you know, we started talking about business and businesses and having a network and somebody to guide you. It's not just about the technical stuff, like doing the books and paying the bills, but like basic stuff on how you show up and how you present yourself. Having somebody in your network who can help you through that is key. 
And I feel like for me, being in this podcast, yes, I love to talk. Yes, I'm like an outgoing like person. But you're right. When I talk about issues that I feel like I don't really know about, if people could see all the little notes I have like sitting on this balcony, <laughs> like trying to be like, okay, do I know enough to speak? And I think you have helped me realize that I don't have to have every answer to have an opinion. I have to have a willingness to put myself out there, a willingness to learn and to be a part of the conversation because that's the only way I will learn. So I appreciate you for not just being a friend, but like somebody in my network who pushes me to have that conversation. Oh, well, I appreciate you too, Aaliyah. No, for real. I mean, but it takes, it takes balance and it takes just getting started. And Daryl answered a lot of the, the asks or pointed out a lot of the issues that, you know, are around business, around access to capital. So I don't want to be repetitive, but for the people that are listening, it's like, this is your permission slip to go and just enter and be great and do the damn thing and figure it out as you go, like build the parachute as you're, as you're descending. Cause it's, yes. it's scary and it's, it may be a little bit like super unfamiliar, but do it. Like what's stopping you? Do it. And one last thing on permission. We've had several people ask us, like, do folks really mean it when they put their number out there or is it okay to contact them? We're giving you permission on that too. We invite people on this show because we wanted to give them a platform. And so if they're giving out their email, if they're telling you how to reach them and you have an idea or you have a connection that can support them, don't wait to ask Katie and I. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Aaliyah. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on our website, on iTunes, on Spotify. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.